Hey folks, Dr. Tim Jordan back here with a new episode of Raising Daughters. And I'm a developmental and behavioral pediatrician who has been working with kids for over 30 years. Uh, I have a counseling practice with girls, grade school, middle school, high school, and through the college years. Primarily, I would say middle school, high school, and college. My wife and I also run weekend retreats and summer camps that are personal growth in nature for girls, uh, grade school through high school. We've been traveling a lot also especially this, this past winter and spring, talking to groups of parents all over, all over the country, all over the world. I've traveled a lot and talked to people in a lot of places, but the most important as, uh, most important way that I gather information, two things. Number one, working with girls, sitting in circles with girls at my retreats, at my summer camps, uh, in my school program, which is called Strong Girls, Strong World. I listen a lot to what's going on for kids today. And I also read a lot. I read a lot, have always have, love to read. And I want to talk today about the concept of human nature. Let me start, as I often do, with a story. And the story involves two brothers who one day were up in their bedroom before breakfast, and they were kind of mischievous. And one brother, the older one, said to his brother, Hey, I think today, because mom and dad and all the adults around us, they always get to say bad words. I think today we should say some bad words, too. The younger brother looked at him with wide eyes like, okay. And the older brother said, I'm going to say hell and you get to say ass. And he's like, okay. So the brothers go downstairs and they sit down at the breakfast table. And the mom comes in. She says, guys, what do you want for breakfast? And the older brother says, oh, hell, mom, I don't care. Give me, just, give me whatever you want. Give me a bowl of Cheerios. And the mom looked at him. She says, you don't talk like that in this home. Now, you leave this table right now. Go up to your room and you can't come back down until you can use better language. And so she, he runs up the steps, upset because his mom's yelling at him. The little brother is still sitting at the table with wide eyes watching all this happen. And the mom comes back and says, well, young man, what do you want for breakfast? And the little boy looks at his mom. He says, I don't know, but you can bet your ass it won't be Cheerios. I think we oftentimes see kids as being mischievous. I think throughout history, we've had sort of a, a sense of our belief system that says that human beings by nature are not good people, that they are selfish, that they are evil, that they do bad things. I just read a book, which I want all of you to read. It's called Humankind, A Hopeful History. Humankind, one word, by Rutger Bregman. And I tried to get him on for an interview for this topic. And I sent an email and his publicist came right back to me within a day. And she said that he's really busy and he is inundated. And so he, he didn't have time to do these kinds of podcasts, kinds of things. So I'm just going to talk to you about the book on my own. By the way, he lives in Holland, but he's a great thought, thought uh, leader. Again, the book is called Humankind. I would, I would encourage all of you to read it. And he talks in the book, and he has tons and tons of studies about human nature and what humankind is really about. At the end of the book, there's, I think, 200 pages of notes. He has really well-researched this topic. As an example, he talked about uh, a time in World War II back in 1940. This was in uh, uh, September of 1940. When the Germans decided they were going to bomb London and break the morale and break the backbone of the British people, they called it the Blitzkrieg. 
And for nine months, they, the Germans bombed London. Over 80,000 bombs. A million buildings were damaged or destroyed. More than 40,000 people were killed in the Blitzkrieg. And yet, despite this, public mental health improved. People didn't break down. This adversity brought the best in people. People were helping each other. People support each other. It had the exact opposite effect of what the Germans thought. Now, Churchill knew this. He had watched all this. And yet, once the, uh, the British people got, got around to being more in control, Churchill responded by doing the same thing to Germany. He bombed Germany, trying to break their morale, even though it had strengthened his countries. Half of the towns and cities in Germany were destroyed. They had 10 times the number of casualties as, it, as the Blitzkrieg in London. And again, morale was not broken, and the German people, it strengthened their resolve. They helped each other. It actually strengthened the German wartime economy, and it ended up prolonging the war. There's tons of studies that show that disasters bring out the best in us. We as human beings love being part of a group. We want to belong. We want to have a sense of belonging. We want to be part of a community because since the dawn of mankind 150,000 years ago, if we were in a group and connected, we had a much better chance of surviving. I just had a random thought that the United States did a similar kind of bombing in Vietnam. And it had the exact same effect, which is it strengthened the Vietnamese army. There's a lot of myths out there that humans by their very nature are selfish, aggressive, quick to panic. And yet, throughout history, there are so many examples of the exact opposite. Think back to 2005 when, 2005 when Hurricane Katrina wiped out you know, the Gulf Coast and we saw people helping each other out. There were some news stories about some looting and things, but those are like little tiny examples when all around 95% of people were doing the exact opposite. They were helping and encouraging and supporting each other. When did we start this, this thinking that humans by their nature are selfish and aggressive and, and angry and all those kinds of things? Well, back uh, in, the, uh, in the years three, uh, I think around the year 400, Father Augustine popularized the belief that human beings are born sinful. That's, he's the one who originated the concept of original sin. Original sin is, the, is a Christian doctrine that holds that human beings, just through the fact of birth, inherited a tainted nature that's in need of regeneration and a proclivity to sinful conduct. We're born sinful, and we're going to be sinful, because that's who we are. I was at my daughter's and son-in-law's house yesterday, and I was holding and feeding my three-month-old grandson, Charlie. And I thought about this concept because I knew I was going to record this podcast today. I was thinking, why do we have a belief system that says that even as these perfect little creatures that were holding and feeding and they smile and he was cooing, how do we, how do we end up thinking that they're, they're tainted? that they have, quote-unquote, original sin. And in the book, Humankind, uh, Rodger Bregman uh, states a lot of things that go into that belief system. One of them was that um, people tried to start, tried to figure out and explain the catastrophes that were befalling us. This is like 50,000 years ago. 
and we start to believe in a vengeful and omnipotent God who was enraged because of something that we had done. That's when we developed this notion of sin. There are human sacrifices to appease the gods, and it became a way, the concept of sin, it became a way of controlling the population. We, we were starting to live in larger and larger communities. We weren't, it wasn't just foraging around. We started losing sight of each other because, because of people you know, living in these communities that were farther apart. And because we were living farther, a little bit farther apart in the communities, and because we weren't quite connecting as much because we weren't foraging and traveling and hunting and gathering and bumping into people, because of that, we started to su- suspect people as being cheaters. They were, they were cheating us. Maybe they weren't being uh, true to their natures. And so the rulers of the time decided they needed something and someone to keep tabs on all these masses, and therefore we created God. We created deities who were of the vengeful types. And these gods were supposed to keep an eye on us 24-7. And these myths of having this um, omnipotent God watching out over us, they allowed us to work together with, with lots and lots of strangers, thousands, and then became millions of strangers. We developed myths and stories and convinced people to believe these stories. And leaders even armed uh, themselves with armies to back up these stories. And we forced these stories on all of us. Leaders profit when the masses believe that people are bad. Because if people are bad, they need to be reined in and controlled and regulated. So that belief system works for the leaders. It allowed them to create armies to protect themselves and their new fortunes. And we started to believe that people are bad. When in reality, they're not. I heard a story a long time ago about a little boy who back in the 1930s uh, went to a little ice cream store. This is when ice cream Sundays cost much less than they do today. And this little boy walked into an ice cream shop and he sat down at a table and the waitress came over and she put down a glass of water and she asked, and the little boy asked her the price for an ice cream sundae. And she said, 50 cents. The little boy put his hand into his pocket and he pulled out some coins. He said, how much is a dish of plain ice cream? When the increasingly impatient waitress said, 35 cents, the little boy once again counted his coins. He said, I'll just have the plain ice cream, vanilla, please. A few minutes later, the waitress brought him his ice cream and placed the bill on the table, and she walked away. After the little boy ate his treat, he paid the cashier, and he left. When the waitress came back, she picked up the empty bowl of ice cream, and then she swallowed hard at what she saw. There, stacked neatly beside the empty dish, were two nickels and five pennies, her tip. Her impatience and her belief about kids being selfish caused her to see him in a different way than what he truly and what he truly was, which was generous. And that's true of kids. Kids are born empathetic and generous. Now, we have a different belief about kids and people and the world because of, I think, all the news stories that bombard us. Newspapers and on the internet, articles, and of course, we turn the TV set, watching the news, hearing all the negative stories, it causes us to be more cynical, more pessimistic. It raises our stress level. It makes people feel depressed. There are research studies that show that, that I, what I just said is true. 
I read a statistic in the book, Humankind, that in Western countries, we average one hour of getting our news per day, which adds up to about three years over our lifetime. We spend three years in our life just listening to news. There's something called a negativity bias, where people are more attuned to negative versus positive information. And the reason we're more attuned to negative things is because it caused us to be more alert, to make sure there wasn't threats, and that helped us to survive. There's another bias called availability bias, where it says we can easily recall examples of something. If we can easily recall examples of something, we assume that thing is common. And because we're bombarded with so many negative stories about war and people and abductions, etc., because of that, we think that people are more negative because that's what's more available. And we don't balance it enough with positive stories on the news, are things that we read, are things that we notice. The philosopher Rousseau believed that man is naturally good, but it's institutions that make men wicked. That resonates more with me. It's interesting that human beings were better able to cope with the harsh climate changes and the conditions of the last ice age because we had developed the ability to work together. Cooperation became more critical to survival than competition. It was less survival of the fittest. It was more about survival of people who, com- who are cooperative. Human beings, crave atten- we crave connection. We crave togetherness and interaction, interdependence. It, I read in the book Humankind that hunter-gatherer societies rarely, if ever, had war. There are thousands of cave paintings we, we have seen by, uh, by anthropologists Thousands of these cave paintings about hunting bison and horses and riding horses and gazelle. There's not one depiction ever found anywhere in the world that depicted war. That's interesting, isn't it? Nomadic foragers, which is what we used to be a long time ago, were very concerned with being free from the authority of others. These societies hated inequality. They used to shame people to keep their members humble and generous. They didn't like hoarding. If people got too greedy, they were exiled. They were kicked out of the group. And thus, they were less likely to reproduce and pass on these aggressive personality traits. That was true, you know, thousands of years ago. There's also an interesting uh, concept called the bystander effect. Where there was, you know, there were some stories in the book, Humankind, about you know, people hearing shootings, like people who lived in an apartment complex would hear a shooting, something going on downstairs. When people thought they were the only one who heard somebody else's cry for help, people always rushed to help. They almost always rush in to try and help the other person. But if they think other people also heard the problem, they're less likely to act because they assume that other people will help that person. There's a huge uh, study 2011 meta-analysis of studies on what what bystanders do in emergencies. 105 studies over 50 years were looked at. And they found that that, that when people thought they were the only ones who heard that cry for help, they did help. If they thought there were others around, they thought they don't need to help because it makes more sense to let somebody else take charge. They were afraid to do the wrong thing. They were afraid of being censored. Or they don't think anything's wrong because they don't see anybody else acting. But when they're alone, 
they helped. If an emergency is life-threatening, the research showed, and if bystanders can see other people and they can communicate with each other, thus they weren't isolated, then they got an inverse bystander effect. Having additional people around that they could see and talk to caused over 90% of people to help each other out in those situations. The natural response is to help others. I work with girls in classrooms. I work with girls in my camps and my retreats. And we do role plays um, to talk about that bystander effect. We'll have uh, three girls sitting in a circle on the floor with one empty spot in their little circle. That's their quote-unquote lunch table. And then we have this other girl walk in and say, hey, guys, can I sit down? And we, ahead of time, tell one girl in the circle, I want you to be the disrespectful girl that says, no, you can't sit here. It tries to leave her out, exclude her. And then we tell the other two kids, do whatever you want. Just the first, actually, no, the first time we tell the other two who are sitting there, follow along with the leader. So the girl walks up, says, hey, guys, can I sit down? The disrespectful girl says, no, you can't. There's no room here. And the other kids just chime in. Yeah, you can't sit here. We're waiting for somebody else. And they, and they go along with it. And then we stop the role play. And we ask the, the, the rest of the kids who are watching, why do you think people go along with the quote-unquote mean girl? You know it's not right to leave people out. We all know that. That's not our nature. But sometimes we do it. Why do you think the two girls in, in that thing might have done that? Why in life do people do that? And then the girls will, will throw out a whole bunch of reasons why. They might be afraid that if they don't go along, that they'll be the next victim. Uh, the girl who's the mean girl, quote-unquote, holds a lot of power because they've been given her her power. They're intimidated. They don't want to be the next target. Um, there's a lot of reasons why that they come up with about why bystanders do what they do. And we also ask, why do you think someone would be the mean girl? Why does someone act that way? And they come up with a whole list of reasons why. They get into that person's shoes for a moment to see things from their perspective. So valuable. And then we do the role play over again. We tell the, the quote-unquote disrespectful girl to do the same thing. And then we tell the two other girls, this time do whatever you want. Just do whatever you think you would want to do. Ready, set, go. The girl walks up. Can I sit down? The disrespectful girl says, no, you can't. There's no room here. And then it's fascinating to watch what the other girls do. One of them will typically say, well, you know, why can't she sit here? And then they start showing ways that you can stand up for a friend. And we'll stop and say, what'd you notice? Uh, well, how do you think, how'd you notice that she stood up for her friend? And then we'll do the role play over and over again and have different people come up and show us different ways you can stand up for a friend. And what's off, almost always happens is once the one girl says, you know, does something, like they may say, you know what, let's just go to another table. And then they'll walk off with that girl. The other girl who is sitting there almost always follows because the girl's courage inspired her. We call these, these people guardians. They leave being a bystander who goes along with it, and they become a guardian. And that's so powerful for girls to be able to practice, how can I learn to have the guts? How can I do that? What are some ways? To, give me some words. Show us some examples. Studies have shown that by 18 months of age, kids are eager to help each other out. 
and they ask for nothing in return. Studies have shown that kids as young as three, if, if given a cake and told to cut it up, they divide the cake equally. And by six years of age, they would rather throw a slice away than let one person have a bigger piece. That's inbred. That's who we are as a people. That's who kids are, and that's who we are. People are born empathetic. We're good at getting in other people's shoes. Empathy is something that we feel for people who we are close to, who we have contact with. We're more empathetic with people that we know and have had contact with. When we shine our attention onto a victim, somebody we don't know, it makes us blind to the perspective of them because they fall outside of our view, which is why, which is why in our role play is at schools and my camps, we ask girls to get in other shoes, even in the shoes of the quote unquote bully. They can start to understand people better, which makes them more empathetic. When I did my year of, of fellowship training in Boston with Dr. T. Barry Braselton years ago, I learned about something called the Rosenthal effect. In the original experiment, uh, the, they had rats, that, uh, and they were, that there was two teams of, of researchers who were working with them. And one of them, was one group was told that their rats were brighter and faster and performed better. And so the other group was told, you have kind of like the dumb rats, if you will. And then they, had the, they put these rats through these different mazes and things. And they found that the rats, that of the students who thought that their rats were smarter, they did better. And what they saw when they looked back at the film was that when they thought that their rats were brighter and faster, they were handled differently. They were treated more warmly, more gently. And that's what allowed them to get through the maze quicker. There's been experiments with elementary school kids where they were, a teacher was told before the school year that uh, these certain kids have a much higher potential. They've, they've performed better on IQ tests. And then they threw them into the classroom. And what they found is, and by the way, the teacher, by the, by, by the way, by the end of the school year, the kids that the teachers thought had the higher IQs did better, performed better on tests, got better grades. And they found that the kids who had been labeled as the smarter kids got more attention. They got more encouragement. They got more praise. And that in turn changed how those kids saw themselves. And so they performed better. The researchers labeled this the the Pygmalion effect. Teacher expectations do influence students. There's a true story about a university professor who years ago sent his students out into a Baltimore um, low-income area. And he interviewed 200 boys. And then he had the, the, uh, the students predict their chances for a successful future. When the students went out there to interview the, the kids, they were shocked at the poor conditions the boys came from. And so they predicted that 90% of the boys would someday spend time in prison. 25 years later, the same professor sent another group, another classroom of students out to find out how those predictions came out. Were they correct? Of the original 190 boys who were interviewed, only four had been imprisoned. How had these boys overcome their adverse conditions? 
More than a hundred of them remembered one high school teacher, a Miss O'Rourke, as having been an inspiration in their lives. After a long search, they actually found this teacher, Sheila O'Rourke. When she was asked to explain her influence over her former students, she was puzzled. All I can say, she decided, is that I loved every one of them. Miss O'Rourke looked at all of her students in the same way. She didn't do what they call the Gollum effect, which was the negative expectations of people changes how we treat them. If we have a negative expectation of somebody, and that includes kids, we look at them less, we smile at them less. One of the mechanisms, mechanisms behind racism is that we have, very lower, we have lower expectations of black kids. And our expectations define our attitude about people and it influences our behavior towards them. I worry that kids today are being categorized at ever younger ages. And that includes things like sports, education, and those with more or less promise are treated differently. I remember one of my nephews, when he was in kindergarten, was on a soccer team. And it was actually a boy and girl mixed team. They had two classes, or sorry, two teams, just evenly mixed, whatever. But at the end of the year, both the teams did okay. The next year, it was interesting. They had two boy teams and two girl teams. And it was interesting that somehow all the better athletes and the better soccer players from the year before were on one team and the lesser athletic kids were on another. And that was arranged by the coaches and politics with parents. And those kids got better and better and the other kids did not. They made that decision in after one year of soccer in kindergarten. The same thing's happening with these travel club select sports where kids are put on a track. I don't like it. Because we're, we treat kids different. They're coached different. They're seen different right from the start. Even though some kids develop later. If we believe that kids aren't as good, if you believe things like people that, if you believe that people can't be trusted, that's how you're going to treat people. And you oftentimes then will get what you expect. I read a story from Anthony DeMello years ago about a farmer who was working in his field one day when a stranger approached him. And this traveler said, hey, sir, what kind of folks live in the next town? And the farmer replied, well, what kind of folks live in the town you just left? Oh, said the traveler, these are horrible people. They were dishonest and selfish and rude. It was really hard living there. Looking up, the farmer shook his head and said, well, I'm sorry to say, that's probably, probably what you'll find in this town too. The fellow kind of moaned and he walked on. Later that very same day, another man, another traveler walked down the same road and we saw the farmer. He also stopped and called out, hey, sir, what kind of people live in this town? And the farmer again asked, what kind of people lived in the town you just left? And the traveler this time had a different story. He said, oh, the people were so thoughtful and kind and friendly. I really hated to leave them. The farmer put down his hoe, extended his hand and smiled. He said, I'm pleased to say that's just about what you'll find with the folks here too. The traveler returned his smile, shook the farmer's hand and headed towards the town towards his new home. Our attitudes are critical in how we see people and how we treat people. The Humankind book had an interesting study from Britain. 
that showed that 74% of people identified more closely with values like being helpful, being honest, things like justice versus wealth, justice more important than status and power, that most that 74% of the people identified with those values of, of honesty, justice, and helpfulness. But 78% of these people thought that other people were more interested and self-interested in things like status and power and money. They themselves identified with the, with the more positive qualities, but they thought other people did not have those qualities. If you treat kids, if you treat employees, if you treat your neighbors as if they're responsible and reliable, they will be more responsible and reliable. And the inverse is also true. Our human nature, our human inclination is for solidarity and cooperation. I told you all a story a little while back, I think, in a previous podcast, but it's worth repeating. There were two travelers one day who were passing through a small town, and they stopped at a little diner for coffee. And they noticed that a man before them in line bought two cups of coffee, but he left with just one. Then they saw several other customers do the same thing. They also noticed that each time an extra cup was ordered, the barista placed a piece of paper on the wall that read, A Cup of Coffee. A few days later, the travelers returned to the cafe and they saw a bedraggled man in uh, very tattered clothes enter the cafe and he pointed to the wall with the papers. The barista smiled and he nodded and he poured the man a cup of coffee and, and the man walked away and they took one of the pieces of paper from the list and he threw it into the trash can. Only then did the men realize that, that the kindness of people who'd ordered, about the kindness of the people who had ordered the day before. And when we see that, when we see generosity like that, it's contagious. I've talked in previous contexts about mirror neurons in our head, in our brains that notice what other people are doing. So if we're around people who are angry, we tend to be more angry. If we're around people who cheat, we tend to cheat more. If we're around people who smoke, we tend to have more inclination to smoke. And if we're around people who are kind and generous, we tend to be more kind and generous. And that goes along with our nature. A man named Thomas Pettigrew did a massive study of 515 other studies from 36, I'm sorry, 38 countries. And his research provided overwhelming support that contact with other people works to help us to get along. Contact with other people engenders more trust, solidarity, and mutual kindness. Getting to know people, having contact. I mentioned that in a previous podcast about the trenches in World War I and how the soldiers on the, on the trenches, in the front lines, when they met people from the other armies, from Britain and Germany, they saw how much they had in common and they, they would have stopped the war in that moment. It was people who, had, who were farther away from the trenches, the generals who were you know miles away in other places. Those are the ones who kept the war going because they didn't have contact with people. Having contact helps people see the world through the other person's eyes. We become more tolerant of strangers. Contact is contagious. Kindness is contagious. It helps us rethink our own biases if we see others acting differently than what we think they're like, based upon stories in the news, um, prejudices, etc. We can overcome our negativity biases by reminding ourselves to assume the best in other people. To assume that most people mean well. 
Now, is that going to be true 100% of the time? Of course not. We're going to occasionally be cheated by somebody, but that doesn't mean we can't trust everybody. There's some things we can do to overcome our biases. I like thinking of the concept of looking at kids in their highest light instead of their labels. James Hillman wrote a book um, years ago called The Soul's Code. I love that book. And I he, he had a good metaphor, which was learning to see kids as an oak tree when all you have before you is an acorn. If you can see kids in their highest light, you'll treat them differently than if you see them as being negative or through their labels, their negative labels like ADHD or not as smart, or you see them as being mean or bossy or whatever. Look at kids and everyone, by the way, in their highest light. I remember um, a long time ago, I saw a video of Stephen Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he did a, a nice role play, which I do with kids a lot. So he had a person uh, at, sitting at a table with him, and they locked hands, and they put their elbows together. And he told the, the other person that every time that, that Stephen Covey would get the other person's hand to touch the table, that the other person would have to give him a dollar, and vice versa. And he said, let's see who can win the most money in a minute. And so then they locked arms. He said, ready, set, go. And the other man tried as hard as he could. And Stephen Covey let him put his hand under the table. So the man's like, oh, okay, $1. Okay, let's do it again. Ready, set, go. The man, again, tried with all of his might to push Covey's hand down, which Covey let him do. After three or four times of that, the man started losing his, his oomph. He, he was confused. Why wasn't he fighting back? Why wasn't he competing? And, he, and within a very short period of time, the men figured out that the best way for them to both earn money was to have no resistance. They would go one, one, two, two, three, three, back and forth. That's a win-win mentality. What I say to kids is, if you want to create win-wins and more cooperation and thus better relationships with people, it only takes one person in that duo to come with that mentality and you can win them over. It takes a lot of maturity and wherewithal to go there thinking, I have full faith that if I operate under this win-win mentality, and if I put the other person's need as high as mine, if I truly want them to win as much as me, if I do that, I can win them over into that, into that thinking along with me. I think we can all do that. We can all drop some of the competition that we are so in love with in this country and start thinking more about win-win. Like I said a minute ago, human beings tend to care more about people who seem like them. We're just wired that way. And so making contact with people allows us to get to know people, to get to know their stories. And then we realize we have way more in common with people than we thought way more in common than we have differences. We, we do that exercise with kids in our school program and in our summer camps. We'll have them pick someone, like if they're in a classroom, they've known each other for years. We'll say, pick somebody to sit with that you know the least well in this class. Now, you've known them, you've been in class, but you haven't really spent as much time. 
and sit with them. And then we'll give you like five or 10 minutes to figure out all the things that you have in common. We tell them to think about foods and experiences and vacations and hobbies and anything you can think of. Find as many things as you can that you have in common. Ready, set, go. And five or 10 minutes later, we can have the group come back and they sit with their partners. Then the two of them back and forth will list all the things that they found they had in common. And it's almost always the case with almost every duo that they find anywhere from five to 10 at least things that they have in common. Like one kid will be like a sporty kid and the other one might be more of a not sporty kid. So they don't hang out as much like at recess, the sporty kids playing soccer and the other one's doing something else. So they think in their minds because of those superficial differences, I guess we wouldn't be good friends because we don't have much in common. But when they sit down together, even though the sport thing may not be a commonality, they both like to draw. They both like going to the beach. They both like to cook. They both like riding horses. They find all these things that they have in common. And boy, does that ever cut through a classroom's, you know, click, clicky stuff. They start treating each other different because they see each other as more similar. We need to start with the belief that people are good, that people are cooperative and helpful and empathetic by nature. And we need to also connect with people uh, and use a common language. There's a great quote by Nelson Mandela, who said, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. But if you talk to him in his language, that goes to his heart. Nelson Mandela was able to see good in people that most people would be judged as beyond redemption. He was willing to see past superficial stuff, labels and all that. He was able to transcend biases about people. And instead, he took the person for who they were right there in front of him. He had contact with people. And because he did, and because he had a belief that people were good, he saw that in people. And thus, you're more likely to get that kind of behavior back from people. I want us all to rethink our beliefs about humankind, just like Rutger Bregman asked us to do in his book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. Because there's lots of research and there's lots of data that shows that we really are good and kind and generous by nature. Let me finish here with the concept of Ubuntu. Archbishop Desmond Tutu would say that peace can be found in the African concept of Ubuntu. Desmond Tutu says, Ubuntu is a concept that we have in our Bantu languages at home. Ubuntu is the essence of being a person. It means that we are people through other people. We cannot be fully human alone. We are made for interdependence. We are made for family. When you have Ubuntu, you embrace others. You're generous. You're compassionate. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu also says that if the world had more Ubuntu, there would be no war. The powerful would help the weak, and that is where peace is to be found. Look at other people, look at your kids in a different way, and your kids and the world will change over time. Thanks for stopping by here at Raising Daughters. Always feel free to pass these on. I always appreciate that. Check out all the things that I do at my podcast, sorry, at my website at www.drtimjordan.com. 
I'll be back here with a new podcast uh, in a week. Thanks so much for stopping by, and I'll see you then.